Well, uh, this is it's always such a joy to uh, preach Easter Sunday. Um, as I've said many times for those that are part of our church, uh, the older I get, the more I appreciate my Anglican upbringing and my Anglican roots. <laughs> that which I despised in my late teens, I've grown to deeply love <laughs> as I get a bit older. Uh, and so what we're going to do as we begin our sermon this morning is read uh, from the Gospel of John. For those that have been tracking with us on our um, our Holy Week journey. We've been working through the Gospel of John on some of the key events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so now we come to John chapter 20, and we're going to work our way through from verse 1 to 23. So here we go. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, sorry, sorry about the size of that, by the way. I did that on purpose uh, to encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. John chapter 20, verses 1 to 23. Um, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. By the way, whenever that happens, that's John who wrote the gospel, humbly just pointing out that he's the one that Jesus loved. Very nice. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and and we don't know where they have put him. So again, you've got to... As you, as you engage with this, just see the breathless kind of state of affairs. Mary Magdalene's turned up, doesn't, just sees the stone and immediately runs, presuming that they've stolen the body. So Peter and the other disciple, that's John who wrote this gospel, started for the tomb. I, this is my, one of my favourite Easter Sunday verses. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> There is no more male verse in the entirety of the Bible than that one. At the biggest moment on the Christian calendar, we have to know that John won a running race with Peter to the tomb. Oh, Lord, give us grace. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Again, just their personalities. Maybe a quicker running, maybe a quicker runner, sorry. But Simon Peter comes along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Again, all these random details. (laughs) Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then, Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realise it was Jesus. I presume because of the snot and the tears involved. That's my scholarly guess there. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Why, who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. He said it just the right way. <laughs> she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Then Mary Magdalene went to the disciples, the very first apostle to the apostles, the very first person to declare that Jesus had risen as a woman. Come on, church. Well, come on, half of the church. Um, And again, just I'm not diving into this, so I have to mention it. Like, not a credible witness in this patriarchal society. 
Who does God pick as the first witness? Mary, I love it. I've seen the Lord, she says to the disciples, and she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Their Greek for overjoyed is like exceeding joy. It's like frothed to the to like amp dialed up to eleven. You know, it's like full noise. Every time I overjoyed, no, it was slightly nuts when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Chill out, boys. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. I mean, just such a beautiful passage. And this, this, um, this day in our Christian calendar is the biggest day. Because this, the resurrection of Jesus is what our faith is built on. Jesus doesn't rise from the dead like, why are you here? Can you see how nice a day it is? Like, the golf course, like, those balls aren't going to hit themselves. You know, those lattes aren't going to drink themselves. But there's something for us as we gather this morning that goes, I think this is true. Like, I, I think there's something about this is true. Now, the reason, I've got a bunch of things this morning to say. I think I've even got three points, maybe. Sheesh, that'd be a minor miracle, it'd be an accident. Uh, but I might have three points. The first thing is this, that resurrection really matters. Like it's everything. Because if the resurrection happened, then you can work backwards and forwards and all around and draw all the obvious conclusions. Jesus' resurrection, if this is true, demonstrates that Jesus is indeed the divine son of God. Uh, he, de- he was declared with uh, power to be the Son of God, Romans 1 verse 4. Jesus' resurrection proves that Jesus' death was indeed a sacrifice able to atone for our sins and reconcile us to God. Otherwise, he was just another, in fact, I've got all these up here, I think, Ramon me. Otherwise, he was just another Jewish slave slash rebel that gets executed. Like, we get all hung up, I said this in my devotion on Friday, we all in the West get hung up on crucifixion. Oh, the physical brutality that Jesus went through. So yes, of course, that, but that wasn't uncommon. It was a brutal time. People got flogged and crucified left, right and centre during rebellions. So that's not unusual. What's unusual is that this is happening to innocent God in the flesh and that the worst that humanity can do, they are doing to God. And he doesn't, he could call down angels and fire from heaven, but instead he forgives. What a God. Sign me up. And therefore, I can be free of the power of sin in my life and be forgiven because of Jesus' death in in that substitutionary place, my place. I deserve death, he dies my death. Jesus' resurrection is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for those who belong to him. Romans 8 reminds us that Jesus who died was raised to life is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. That's, I mean, again, how cool is that? If he actually rose from the dead, now he's in heaven. He sent his spirit, his living presence with, is with us. There's two or three gather in his name. So we can sense him, his resurrection presence in our midst this morning. But where he is, is he's standing before God saying, Andy, God, we've got to get in his corner. He's absolutely brilliant. Not only is he a very handsome man, but he wears great shirts. And like, man, you know, he's like, intercede. We're going to see breakthrough, friend. And, and, and you put your name in there. He's for you. Standing before the Father saying, go team, let's go. We're for these guys, we're going to see them flourish. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates God's power over death. 
that Jesus has opened up for believers a path to eternal life with God. I've taken many funerals and had the privilege of being with people as they died, saints. And it's like, man, I could tell you trippy stories of like, of like people going to, in that moment of death, crossing over to that heavenly realm. Like, man, if, that, if Jesus has risen from the dead and that is true, then the power, the like, we all have to still walk through that door, that, but the sting has disappeared. The sting's gone. We still have to go through it, but the sting's gone because we know what's happening next. Oh, I don't have time to tell you some stories. Can, can you see me wrestling right now? <laughs> no, we can talk about that another time. This has featured in previous talks. Jesus' resurrection then led to the birth of the worldwide church. Uh, on the day of Pentecost, it was proclaimed, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. And 3,000 people were baptised, filled with the Spirit and joined the infant church. If Jesus had not been risen, there would be no Christian church and we would never have even heard of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection means that Jesus is forever living Lord of the church. Thank goodness for that. He's the head of the church, not your pastor. Thank you, Lord. Any pastor worth their salt that's got half a brain is going to be pretty happy that Jesus is in charge of this motley crew. Jesus' resurrection gives us confidence that one day he will return to defeat all evil, end all suffering, and make all things new. Hallelujah. We're going to explore that a little bit in the book of Revelation. But we can look forward with confidence and expectation to when Jesus fully establishes the awesome reign of God. But here's the thing. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, that list is meaningless. Tish Warren said this, I'm a Christian today not because it answers all my questions about the world or about our suffering. It does not. And not because I think it's a nice coherent moral order to which, by which to live my life, which it is. And not because I grew up this way or have fond feelings, about, fond feelings about felt boards and hymn sings, and not because it motivates justice or helps me to know how to vote. I am a Christian because I believe in the resurrection. If it isn't true, to hell with it. That's, you know my favourite scripture? It's certainly Easter Sunday, but I reckon overall it may be up there. It's definitely top five. I love this. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Be encouraged. <laughs> love it. More than that, when we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. This is big. I love that this is in our holy book. Like, I feel that. I'm with Paul. I'm like, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, I have chosen the wrong career path. Like, that is a big mistake. Not only that, I get up most Sunday because I believe in the resurrection, preach my little guts out that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and let's follow him and be with him, become like him, and do what he did, and get in the home church and come to Sunday and do all the rest of it. <laughs> and the kingdom of God is breaking into heaven, blah, 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 because of the resurrection. This day's key. And here's my point. Like, guys, you, you have to wrestle with it. Like, I have, I'm not standing up here preaching all frothed up because I haven't wrestled with it. I have doubted the resurrection. And any Christian that's done some work should have. Well, you can't, like, this is it. The resurrection of Jesus. There are moments where I've been like, really? Did that actually happen? It got very quiet. <laughs> Because it resonates with you. Who hasn't? And We're not here to have blind faith. We're here to have a reason, grounded faith. And then when you wrestle with it, it doesn't diminish your faith. It builds your faith. So here's why I believe in the resurrection. Firstly, I'm going to play a little video by my friend N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham. And he... Um, 
He's the cleverest, I think, New Testament scholar alive today. And he has written the gruntiest academic work on the resurrection of the Son of God that I simply can't read. I've tried. It's like that. It's great doorstop, it turns out, and it can help um, level wonky desks and that sort of thing. But it's a tough read. It is pure academia, uh, but it is thorough. He is an expert at this whole gig. And here's just a couple of minutes of him in his very British way talking about the resurrection, hopefully. Ramon? Yes. The resurrection of Jesus took everybody by surprise. The disciples weren't expecting it. They knew perfectly well if you followed somebody who you thought was the Messiah and he got killed, then that was it. We know of at least a dozen other messianic or prophetic movements within the hundred years either side of Jesus. They routinely ended with the death of the founder. Um, and if, they, if the movement wanted to continue, they didn't say, oh, he's been raised from the dead. They said, let's find his brother or his cousin or somebody who can carry on this movement. We can see how those Jewish groups did that. This one did it differently. They had James, the brother of Jesus, as this great leader in the early church. Nobody said James was the Messiah. They said Jesus was the Messiah. Why? He's dead. He, they, they got him. Didn't you realize they crucified him? No, he was raised from the dead. The only way you can explain why Christianity began and why it took the very precise shape it was is, let's say it cautiously, first, they really did believe he was bodily raised from the dead. And then if you take the second question and say, why would they believe that? You can go through all the theories that they found themselves forgiven, that they had a fresh sense of the presence of God, that this was cognitive dissonance, etc. And you bring all those theories to the actual facts that we know on the ground from the first century. They just don't fit. The only way you can explain the rise of the early Christian belief that Jesus was raised is that there really was an empty tomb, they really did meet Jesus alive again in a transformed body, and the thing makes sense. Of course, when I wrote a big book on this, my philosophy tutor from Oxford, who was an atheist, um, uh, read it, and he said, great book, you really make the argument, he said, I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation even though I don't know what it was. I said, fine, that's as far as I can take you. I can't bully you into saying, therefore you must believe, because to do that requires a change of worldview. But once you change the worldview and say maybe there really is a creator God, and maybe this creator God really is sorting out this sad old world at last, then everything else makes sense in a way that it doesn't with any other possibility. His book, Surprised by Hope, is a fantastic book to read that's pitched more at a lay person if you want to dive in a bit deeper there. I like this stuff. Uh, and as we go through Revelation, like this is a church that really values New Testament scholarship especially. <laughs> and if you just, if that's not your flavour, fine, but I'm sorry, that's who we are. We take that very, and I love diving deep into this stuff because while it can be hard work at times, it builds your faith. And so when you look at things like the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, the transformed disciples, the impact of, of, uh, on history and the experience of billions, it builds my faith that this actually did happen. One of the most convincing arguments to me is actually James, the brother of Jesus. I'm like, mate, if I said, if my brother said, I'm the Messiah, I'll give him a dead arm and we'd move on, you know? I mean, and then if he kept on going, I'd be like, lock him up, you know? And it's like, the, but for James to testify that his brother Jesus indeed rose from the dead and was prepared to die for that in early church history, that, that's okay. Now we've got to do some head scratching and work out whether this really went on. But here's, here's probably the principal reason that I believe in the resurrection is because 
I have experienced the presence of the risen Christ. Like it's, it's revelation, first and foremost. Um, I love, when I read this book over summer, um, a book When Everything's on Fire by Brian Zand, it moved me deeply. When he talks about the centrality of revelation in the Christian faith, he mentions that when the, the church is built on revelation, when Peter says, you are the Christ, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. What's the rock? It's the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. Paul makes a big deal about revelation in, in his books. That, and what I mean by revelation is the experience of God that you feel. And he says this, direct knowledge concerning uh, ultimate transcendence. He's a very smart guy. Some words here you may not understand. That's okay. But you, you might get the gist. Direct knowledge concerning ultimate transcendence is only possible if the transcendent one initiates contact. That's a dense sentence, but that's good. This God-initiated contact is what Paul means by revelation. Christianity is not a series of proofs. It is the confession based on the revelation that Jesus is Lord. Though I claim that Christianity is credible, it is not provable. The revelation of Jesus Christ cannot be proven or disproven. It can only be proclaimed. And the proclamation can either be believed or disbelieved. But Paul insists that the capacity to believe is inherently present in the proclamation. The proclamation is self-authenticating because it is the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so I proclaim to you today, now whether God brings revelation to some of you or not, that's not up to me, hallelujah. But I proclaim to you today, and if this resonates, hallelujah, that Jesus is the Christ. And I proclaim to you that He is God. And I proclaim to you that He was crucified for our sins. And I proclaim that He is risen. He is risen indeed. And if there's something in you that leaps when I say that, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So that's as far as I can take you when it comes to why I believe. But I say this often. I think I know in my knower that this is true. And if that's the case... Wow, that's got some implications. That's got some implications. So if that's the case, then a new creation has begun. It's the great reversal. Rich Velotis, a wonderful pastor in New York City, said, uh, tweeted some stuff this week, and you just, again, these super smart people that can <laughs> concisely put it in a tweet. And I've added a couple of Harvey ones as well. But it's like what John Christostom was saying. It's like Jesus goes to the garden to be obedient to the Father, undoing Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. Adam and Eve sewed clothes to put on to cover their nakedness while Jesus was stripped of his clothes and hung naked. Adam and Eve begin in paradise but are forced out the gates due to the curse. Jesus dies outside the gates but ends up in paradise due to the cross. Adam and Eve's sin ushered in a curse of thorns and Jesus wears a crown of thorns as he's ushered in as he ushers in salvation from sin. I mean, this is the great reversal. This resurrection is the great reversal. What happens over Easter is the great reversal. But wait, there's more. On Good Friday, according to Brian Zahn, Jesus was buried in a garden. A garden is a place to cultivate and grow living things, an appropriate place for Jesus to be buried. A few days before his crucifixion, Jesus had said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. On Holy Saturday, the Son of God was a holy seed sown in a peaceful garden. 
On Easter Sunday, the garden brought forth the first fruits of resurrection. Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God by resurrection from the dead, Romans 1 verse 4. It's fascinating what's happening in John's Gospel. If you had eyes to see, you would have noticed this. A number of times John says this phrase, it was the first day of the week. It was the first day of the week. It's like he is, he is intentionally putting in there to help bring echoes to Genesis 1. It's a new creation. It's a new creation. Uh, new life has burst into the world. It's day one again. And the first seed raised by God in the garden of resurrection became the gardener. When Mary Magdalene supposed him to be the gardener, she was exactly right. <laughs> Jesus is now the gardener of resurrection, cultivating new life in all who believe. The first Adam was a gardener who failed in his task and the world became a wasteland of war and sin. But the second Adam will succeed in his task. Christ will restore the ruined garden. With Christ as the gardener of new creation, we have a hopeful eschatology. With Christ as the gardener of the new creation, we have a hopeful eschatology. What we mean by eschatology? Our belief in the end times and what's going to happen. N.T. Wright points out this. It's interesting in the Gospels that the line is not, Jesus is raised, therefore look up into the sky and keep looking because one day you will go there with him. Many hymns, prayers and Christian sermons have tried to pull the Easter story in that direction, but the line of thought within the Gospels themselves is, Jesus is raised, therefore God's new world has begun, and therefore we, you and everybody else are invi invited to be not only beneficiaries of that new world, but participants in making it happen. So our tasks now, friends, as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians is, is to follow God, shaping the world to announce that Jesus has risen and that new creation has come. This is, like, this is our theology for why we bother doing cap budgeting courses. Why? It's because that stress of financial hardship is not part of the new world. So like, let's help you sort your budget out to allow a whole lot of stress in your life. That's why what Andre and Cherie do, and we get to support them through Manawa Order Trust and as a community, is, like, is, is resurrection life bursting into broken worlds. And so we do, we do it with a very clear theology, resurrection theology. We are in the business of seeing people raised to new life again. And, and how does that happen? It's not just by Christians trying, empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. We are called now as a church to go into a broken and hurting world, bringing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Because he's risen again and new creation has come. And Revelation says that one day he'll return in glory and bring the work to completion. But we don't just come Lord Jesus. Like, yes, come Lord Jesus, I can't wait. But until then, we partner with you to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Resurrection life bursting into the world. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because he has risen from the dead. So first point, can't remember. Second point, it's important. Third point, again, that wasn't that. Resurrect me. Begin with me. Let's see, let's see God's resurrection life begin with us and flow into the world around us. And as the body of Christ, be people of that new life. Now, I understand we live, and Jesus is very clear about this, we live in an already not yet tension of the kingdom of God. We still, there's still suffering. There's still pain. There's still death. The, the clearest metaphor is D-Day and V-Day. On the cross, the decisive victory was won. 
But the war continued until V-Day, when the war ended. And so now we are on the winning side, empowered by the Spirit of God to see His kingdom come. But one day He will return victorious in glory and bring the work to completion, and the glory of God will cover this world the way that the water covers the seas. Like that's the, that's the story that we're a part of. So we have hopefully, so we do sit with suffering and unanswered prayer and tension and but at the same time, God is in the business of bringing things to life. And though outwardly we may be wasting away, inwardly we are going to be renewed day by day. And so uh, there's this uh, a guy called John Foreman who's the lead singer of a band called Switchfoot. And he wrote this song called Resurrect Me. Love it. And he said, in some of his lyrics, he says this, Father time steals our days like a thief. There's no price that I haven't paid to get some relief. I've become the shell of a man. That's some good lyrics. Most of us have been there. Anesthetizing our pain, all sorts of dysfunction and brokenness in our lives. He's I'm beginning to understand I've forgotten who I am. Come on and resurrect me. Resurrect me. Come on and resurrect me. It's like a lament with the hope of resurrection at the heart of it. That rings true for, for us. That rings true for me. I'm like, yeah, Lord, resurrect me. Like I, I'm a bit messed up still, a bit broken, but keep resurrecting me. And I look back over the last 20 years of following Jesus seriously and the 40 years of 50-50 bits in there and a bit of mess and a bit of the rest of it. But I can stand before you today saying he's good at what he does. He's, I'm so grateful for who I am in Jesus today. He's resurrecting me. It's way slower than I would like. Way slower. Than, I thought I would respond to a few altar calls and be well sorted. <laughs> Turns out it's a lifelong journey of, of, of being faithful to the land that was slain. Again, key theme of Revelation. I'm going to continue to be faithful. But over time, he does something. Uh, and the church is the, the gift of a community of Christians, in which uh, this is Eugene Peterson. The church is the gift of a community of Christians in which we rehearse and orientate ourselves in the practice of resurrection. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus, life. I love this. Like This is who we are. We're the people practicing resurrection. And how does that look? Well, this is where Easter again is stunning. Easter is the metaphor for how we walk into new life. Because most of us would like just to land on Sunday, where it's like, bang, new life's coming, baby, hallelujah. But I'm sorry, folks, the story starts a little earlier, where you have to pick up your cross and you follow Jesus. And you follow him and you die on Easter Friday. And then there's the Saturday. And Saturday, you know what the cross is? The cross is a picture of obedience and humility. So if you want to walk into new life, then you've got to pick up your cross and whatever looks like obedience, radical obedience to God and radical humility, that's cross-like behaviour. And then, like, you do that, and you know what that's looked like for me a whole stack of times? Do, 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 do. Oh, hello, Councillor Joe. Yeah, I need to talk to you. Do you have an appointment real soon, ideally? I'm in a bit of a pickle. You know what that's meant sometimes? Oh, dear, this preacher's speaking to me, well, the preacher, God's speaking to me through this preacher. 
Oh, please don't have an altar call. Please don't have an oh, oh no, he's having an altar call. He's having an altar Oh, no. That was, that was, how did he, did he read my mail? Has he been looking at, you know, what, how does he know that? Oh, obedience and humility. I'm going to respond. Lord, I'm sorry. Oh, Lord, meet me in my brokenness. Oh, Lord, bring healing. Like, that's Easter Friday. Easter Saturday? I just did that. How come nothing's changed? Where the heck are you? I went to the council. I did the thing. It's like, you know, and we wait sometimes. We wait expectantly. We wait with hope. But like my porn addiction didn't get fixed in an altar call. Took a long time to get that sorted. Kept hanging in there. Kept running to the throne of grace. It took a long time, longer than I care to admit. You know, But Easter Sunday's coming if you don't give up. If you don't give up. If you keep, and you know, like having a vision for a life of integrity, having a vision for a life of having a vision for being a fruity person, love, joy, and peace, you know, being your experienced reality rather than the rare exception. Like having a vision for that and then partnering with God in obedience and humility and then just not giving up in the promise of God to bring new life. I promise you, you'll get there. Because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is at work in you to bring you to life again. The Easter metaphor is the story of our Christian life. And you don't just go through it once or twice, you go through it many times. And we do it once a year as a Christian calendar, it's just what we do as the church. But you can do that many times a year sometimes, where you, you pick up the cross of obedience and humility, and you just you let God sometimes break you kill the bits in you that need to be killed. That isn't fun. Death isn't fun. It's, it's, it's painful and there's suffering involved and there's grief. There can be even grief for those funky habits that were destroying our lives because they were just part of our friends. We're friends with them. Well, there's grief and pain. And then there can be that waiting of like, where's this new life I was longing for? It will come. It will come. It may be Friday, but Sunday's coming. <laughs> Maybe Friday, as old Ken Polo preached that back in the day. Yeah, Friday, but Sunday's coming. You know, you got to pick up your cross. You got to pick up your cross. So here's here's three different thoughts on on ways that could what that could mean for you this morning. What does it look like to have a resurrection vision to be with Jesus, <laughs> become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did if He was you? Oh, hold on a second, that's our whole gig here, right? But this is what we're talking about, resurrection life. What does it look like to have a resurrection life to be with? We're like, we, we, this is the, this is, some of us are in this place. We're like, I'm just so tired of living a distracted, overly busy, shallow life. I want resurrection life. I want intimacy with God every day. I want to sit with Him and know His love and know intimacy with Him. I'm tired of living like I'm in Egypt. I want to walk into the promised land. I want a vision to be with Jesus. I'm, I want to move from being in the kitchen doing all the stuff to the lounge to sit at the, at the feet of Jesus because I confess that He is the source of all life. He is the one from which all the fruit I long to see in my life, He's the one where it comes from. I practice resurrection by sitting with the one who will shape me to be a person filled with overflowing love, joy, and peace. That sounds like a resurrection life to me. <laughs> that sounds so good. And I know we're like heaps of us are deep on this journey. We're, we're like fighting for this part of our lives because we haven't been discipled well historically and we have been formed into people who are distracted easily 
by our culture. But there's this resurrection life hunger in our church, which I love, that says, I want to be with him. I want to be with the risen one. You hang out with the risen Christ, then risen life will start bursting into your world more and more and more. Having a vision for sitting with him on the daily, just with intimacy and nearness. And honestly, sometimes it's like stacking firewood or left foot, right foot. You don't feel too much, but you still have the habit of being with him. I had last week, I had my upper upper click, which just to clarify is not upper click or superior. It is up a click, like I'm going to get a bit better in doing this thing in my life. I have to clarify that every now and then. And as someone mentioned today, that would be a good idea to do that again. Uh, this week I sat down with my accountability boys and I was like, yeah, left foot, right foot. It just it like until Friday. And it was like, and then Friday came and I had a zinger. And I was like, ooh, <laughs> nothing. So I just, I, but I, you know, that Friday wouldn't have happened in terms of a lovely moment with Jesus if I hadn't just kept turning up, if I'd just given up. But there I was stacking my firewood and some fire fell. <laughs> it was a good time. And it felt like resurrection power, which is ironically on Friday. <laughs> uh, and it was just beautiful. Let's keep persevering, practicing resurrection together as a community. Let's practice resurrection to become more like Jesus. In Western culture, New Zealand culture, it does not offer the conditions for growing up. Maturity is not a hallmark of our culture. We are way more like children tossed to and fro by the waves, Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 4 verse 14, than mature Christ followers. But listen, Christian maturity is not a matter of doing more for God. It's God doing more in and through us. So Christianity is with its grace. Christian maturity is not doing more for God. It's God doing more in and through us. It's, it involves the work of the Holy Spirit forming our born... The, sorry, let me... This is a quote now from Eugene Peterson's book, um, Practicing Resurrection. <laughs> Growing up involves the work of the Holy Spirit forming our body again, form, forming our born-again spirits into... Have I got this? Yes, I do. It, sorry, I'm such a distra- distraction, eh? I'm not distracted. Ooh, butterfly. Ooh, ooh, my slide is there. Ooh, Andy shit. Okay. Growing up involves the work of the Holy Spirit, forming our born-again spirits into the likeness of Christ. It is the work anticipated by St. Luke's sentence in John the Baptist, on John the Baptist. After the story of his birth, we read, the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly. That is followed a page or so later by the sentence on Jesus following the story of his birth, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in divine and human favour. St. Paul uses a similar vocabulary to describe the agenda he sets out for Christians in the Ephesians letter, that we come to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Or as I've translated it in the message version, God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything, so that we grow up healthy in God, robust in love. This again, have a vision for the resurrection life so that, and that we become more like Jesus is so important. Judas points us out that you can hang out in a Christian environment for a long time and still not be formed into his image. Christians can come to church year in, year out, and yet they don't become more like Jesus. I want to become more like Jesus. 
I don't want to be the same this time next year as I am right now. I want to be a little bit more loving, a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more patient, a little bit more kind. All the stuff outlined in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5, especially in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. What is that? The evidence the Holy Spirit's having a good time in your body and in your life is that you are growing in these, these, these attributes. It should be clear I should be able to ask your husband or wife, how's the sanctification journey going, is he? You know, or whoever. And it's like, and there should be a sense of like, really slow, but it's happening, I reckon. It's happening. The trajectory's kind of there, I reckon. If you take a long view back, yeah, I reckon we can. Right, I want that to be your story and my story where we become a fruity people. And what's a fruity people filled with the fruit of the Spirit? They are, they, the fruit of the Spirit is like, that's what God's like. That's His Spirit. You become more like that. You become more like God whose image you are made. You actually become more human. So that's a resurrection vision to become more like Him. And then a resurrection, a resurrection vision for how you do what He did. And you know what He did? He laid down His life for the sake of others. To live a life that has a resurrection vision is actually to have a cruciform vision for your life. The cruciform, a cruciform life is that I'm willing to give my life away in love to see other people find life. That's the cruciform life. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And he says, follow me. And you know, that's a big jarring push back against everything that culture's feeding you around what life should look like. But can I promise you this? The paradox is this, that the more you give your life away in a cruciform way, the richer your life becomes. The richer your life becomes. That's where the real life is found. That, you know what, I love this church because it's, it's a bit diverse. I'd like, to, I'd like it, to, in all honesty, to be a bit more diverse than it is, but it's pretty diverse. I'm like, man, that makes us rich. That makes us rich. Where else do you get to hang out with people from every type of background, lots of different cultures, very different economic positions and amounts of dollars and banks and all that sort of, everyone's, and yet together we're unified in Jesus, that's rich, rather than just hanging out with the people that are all like you. That's way richer. You know, um, I love Steve and June Bradley are some of my heroes, amazing. They voluntarily have given their life away for our church. They live a very cruciform life for us as a community. They should be cruising and playing on boats and playing golf. They've worked very hard to have that space in their lives. And they've chosen to spend these years serving us. Um, and I just got this, I, didn't, I wasn't there for this, but a few of the boys were. When, uh, we give out Christmas boxes every year, and, um, and we give them to the pad in, in, uh, in Marainui. Um, <laughs> so there's Steve, who used to be the manager at Hewlett, you know, one of the big shots at Hewlett-Packard worldwide and jet-setting everywhere and stuff, who's very British, by the way. God bless you guys in there. And it's like uh, wearing his little boat shoes and, you know, we're, he's quite casual for, for an Englishman, actually. The, the Kiwi thing sorted that out. <laughs> Uh, and then I'm like, there, there he is, walking towards the pad with our blessing box, and Bruce, or, or I think you're with him, 
You know, guys, we got, and I'm like, that's rich. That's better than the cruise ship. That's better than the golf course. That's rich. What a life. What a privilege that we get to be part of that, right? Me and Andre were catching up for lunch today, having Subway. And it's like, we were in the line. We didn't even sit down and we're both geeking out about what God's doing in our lives and through our crew and all that sort of stuff. And we all partnered together, like trying to, just we're having a total geek out at God's goodness and, and what's happening through our church as we kind of all kind of work out how we can be a blessing to this community. And I'm just sitting there looking at my friend Andre going, I'm the richest man in the world. I'm the ri- what a rich life I'm living. I'm eating Subway with Andre. What a legend. I get to hang out with, you know, and I feel the same. Anytime I hang up with any of you guys, I'm like, what a privilege. How rich is this? How rich is this? You know, there's been financial cost for us uh, to, in terms of lost potential earnings, <laughs> that's what I could have done with my life, uh, as well as very real, worth every cent. How rich is this? What a privilege, true riches. That's the life he longs for us to live, is a life that's rich because we be with him, become like him and do what he did in choosing in our way to lay down our lives to bless others. And so as we come into land this morning, the question uh, I have for us on this beautiful Resurrection Sunday is simply this. Where does God want to bring new life for you? Where does God want to bring new life to you? Where does he want to bring new life? Uh, and that's, that's between you and God. And we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and just speak to us. If there's, and you know, some people, as I've been praying about this morning and even now, it's like, some of you, there's things we like, I desperately want new life here, but I'm just not sure if God can do it. And I feel like this morning he wants to breathe fresh hope into you and to remind you, hey, mate, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is available for you, mate. You can do it. Don't lose hope. Keep fighting. Keep partnering with me. Don't give up. Right? There's some immediately as I talk about what is the Holy Spirit, some of you are like, oh, I'd love that, but I don't know. Maybe it's I can't hope for that anymore. I'm too discouraged. No, this morning it's time to hope again. It's Resurrection Sunday. We invite the Holy Spirit to come and reveal afresh His power that's with you to lead you into that deeper, richer life that you long to live. It's all grace. It's all just a gift. We don't deserve it. He's just so epic. He loves doing that. It's not about how good you are, how clean you are, how sorted you are. It's how available you are to be obedient and humble before Him to pick up your cross and say, yes, Whatever you got to do, do it. I'm going to believe that you're going to lead me to resurrection life.